sometimes there, there's a difference between what we think we see and what we are actually looking at. You ever notice that? Sometimes uh, there are things that are kind of hiding in plain sight. Sometimes our eyes play tricks on us. Sometimes we just don't understand what we're looking at. We've all seen um, animals so well camouflaged that you can be looking right at them and you don't even know they're there, right? One time I know I was, I was turkey hunting years ago and I could hear turkeys. I wasn't seeing any, so I, I, I sort of army crawled my way to a different vantage point. And as the sun was, it was getting late, the sun was kind of going down. And as I peeked out of the weeds, I saw what I knew to be the telltale arch of a tom turkey's tail feathers in struts. I thought, this is it. I got really excited, but I called, and I called, and I called, and I, I could not get what turned out to be an old tire on a fence post to come any closer to where I was. He was very stubborn. He also tastes terrible. That was, uh, that was my eyes playing tricks on me. I swore that was a turkey. Here's another one. The, uh, in, in World War I, the Germans sunk a lot, hundreds and hundreds, thousands of Allied ships. And the way that worked back then, it's not like in World War I, these were laser-guided torpedoes, right? It was math. A submarine would have to find a ship out in the ocean. Then they would just have to judge the, the the, the trajectory, the path, and the speed of that ship, and then they would position themselves and just through math know when to fire this torpedo so that a few minutes later the two would meet. So the Allies figured out during World War I a good way to protect their ships was to paint them like this. That's called razzle camouflage. And it didn't hide those ships from the German submarines. But what it did was it played tricks on the guys making those calculations. You could apparently, through a periscope, if you looked at one of those boats, it looked like it was heading in a slightly different direction than it was actually heading. And that those calculations would be off just by a little bit and a ship Survive. It's also sweet. I'm thinking of getting old blue painted like that right there. Well, where we pick up in the book of Matthew today, we're right at the end. Jesus is going to be crucified in today's passage. And it's going to be very public. Everyone is going to see it. But no one around there is going to understand what they're actually looking at. They're going to think that they are seeing the defeat of a weak man. But what they're actually looking at is the coronation ceremony of the King of Kings. Presenting Jesus to be the King, the Christ, the Messiah is probably Matthew's main theme throughout this whole book. He has said it Dozens of different ways. The first verse of the book said this is a book about the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of David. 
The genealogy that follows, that he's from the right family. The magi, the wise men, these Gentiles from the east, they knew that he was uh, the king. Jesus' first words in his public ministry were repent because what's at hand? The kingdom. You know why the kingdom was near? Because the king had shown up. The disciples recognized him as the Christ. Herod tried to kill him because he thought he might be the Christ. Jesus alluded to passages from like Ezekiel that were about the Christ, the Messiah. On and on and on. And for Matthew, today's the coronation ceremony of the king. I know it's also his crucifixion. It won't look like a coronation ceremony, but that's, that's what it is. It's the pinnacle of his ministry. It's what he came to earth to do. Just because no one around him saw that that's what was happening doesn't make it any less true. So this morning, as we read through and study this passage, we have to look at it this a couple different ways. What actually was happening, happening and, and what people really saw. And then we also have to sort of look through that so that we can see what actually is happening that people miss. Let's, let's read our, our passage this morning. Matthew 27, verses 27 through 44. And they read this way. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand, and they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. They took the reed and began to beat him on the head. After they had mocked him, they took the scarlet robe off of him, put his own garments back on him and led him away to crucify him. As they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink that was mixed with gall or myrrh, and after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over Jesus there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers, or better, criminals, were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at Jesus, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and then we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if God delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers or criminals who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. 
There's our passage today. It begins in in verses 27 through 31 where we see Jesus being mocked and humiliated by Roman soldiers. If you glance up one verse, we see that Jesus has already been flogged by the time we open up today. So he has already been beaten incredibly severely, beaten to weakness. And now, what the soldiers do after having tortured him, is they dress Jesus up in something of a Halloween costume. They dress him up like a fake king. They mock him, they make fun of him, because to them, Jesus is being executed for claiming to be a king. So they mock that. Here's what they don't see. And they place the crown on his head, a scepter in his hand, and the robe around his shoulders. They've just crowned the king of kings. They may not see it. They may not know. But that's who he is. Jesus shows incredible restraint right here. These men whom somehow he created and whom he will judge one day. He just takes this from these guys. If if you knew one day you were going to be on trial in front of a judge and you found yourself in the company of that judge who you knew would be your judge and have your sentence in his hands, how would you treat that judge? Very respectfully, right? These guys don't know. They just see a weak, condemned man. But we get some hints in the passage that Jesus, though he is physically weak, is still very strong. This is restraint, not weakness. It's meekness, not weakness. We see his weakness In verse 32, as they're going out, they found Simon of Cyrene. This is the very famous passage of of a man named Simon being pulled out of the crowd to carry the crossbeam of Jesus. Uh, Crucifixions by, by design were very public. They were a public advertisement by the Romans of what can happen to someone if they get crossways with the Romans out in a conquered area. Part of that, part of that public nature was Crucifixion uh, victims were often beaten to death. They often didn't survive the flogging. Um, They were supposed to because it's more public. Very often they were too weak to carry the cross beam. Usually they would just, in the picture, just have this part, not the entire cross. But they were too weak to carry that. So here's what the Romans could do. They could impress or press someone into service. They couldn't do it to a Roman citizen. But as long as someone wasn't a Roman citizen, like Simon from a place we now call Libya, they could grab him and say, now you have to carry that beam. That was a way for the Roman government to say, this could be you. If you break the rules, this could happen to anyone. Now, For us, we're supposed to think that could be me, but Jesus took my place. What we really learn, though, is just that Jesus had been beaten 
past the point of you know, any physical work. He'd been, he'd been beaten to a point of incapacitation because he was, he was here for this, right? He was going to do the cross and he's been beaten to a point of physical weakness. But there is strength right here too. Check this out. We miss this because we don't know what this stuff is. But when they get to the place called Golgotha, place of the skull, Jesus, we know from the book of John, he was thirsty. But they give him wine mixed with gall or myrrh, probably both, to drink. That's the closest thing they had to morphine. That's the painkiller that would be offered to crucifixion victims. And Jesus, we know, has been beaten so severely he can't physically function anymore. He has to be under incredible amounts of pain. Won't drink the painkiller. Why? Because he is there to swallow the full measure of God's wrath. And he will not deaden the wrath of God. His he may be, like he said, just within the last 24 hours in Gethsemane, when the disciples were falling asleep, remember what he said to them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is. That's Jesus right here. He's been beaten in his flesh to weakness, but they can't get at his spirit. I'm sure they were confused by why Jesus would spit that out, refuse to drink the painkiller. But there's more going on than people can see. We see another indication of strength in verse 35, which reads this way. When they, that's the soldiers, when they crucified him, they divided his clothes by, this translation says, throwing dice. Yours probably says casting lots. Throwing dice gives us a better picture of what was really going on. This was part of your pay uh, for, for doing this sort of work. You got to divide up whatever things of value the condemned man might have had. In this case, clothes, garments. They cast lots for that. Here's, where, here's why that is a, it's a picture of strength. This lets us know that, that Jesus had given himself into the hands, not of the Romans, but of the one who is really in control. What's happening to Jesus wasn't an accident. It was a design that had been planned from the very beginnings, from the first sin. I want to read with you in just a minute. I'll put it on the screen. Part of a poem from, from it's the 22nd Psalm. King David wrote it. And, and you'll see this line in there. They divided his clothes David wrote what we're about to read a thousand years before Jesus ever lived. A thousand years is a long time. A thousand years ago, it was the year 1019. That's a long time. Like England wasn't a country yet. And a thousand years before Jesus, before the Roman Empire was even a thing, before crucifixion had been invented as a form of execution, God worked in the heart of King David to write a poem that 
can only be about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ that wouldn't happen for a thousand years. You read it with me and see if you can come to a different conclusion. Psalm 22 begins this way. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus will say that in next week's passage. People insult me and despise me. I'm treated like a worm and not a man. People insult me and despise me. All who see me taunt me. They mock me. They shake their heads saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let the Lord deliver him. Let the Lord rescue him since the Lord delights in him. Be not far from me. The trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls have encircled me. They open wide their mouth to devour me. As a ravening and roaring lion, I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. The roof of my mouth is dried up as a piece of pottery, and my tongue cleaves to my gums. A band of evildoers has encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. My enemies gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. For my clothing, they cast lots. Doesn't that sound like today's passage? It's about today's passage. It was just written a thousand years ahead of time. Which teaches us this, this is coming off according to plan. This is what is supposed to be happening. This is a coronation as much as an execution. Also in verse 35, Matthew almost skips over the actual crucifixion. Did you notice this? 35, it just says, when they had crucified him, wait a minute, when did that happen? Right? He didn't tell us. We know what that means. Matthew's much more uh, interested in describing the reactions of other people to Jesus than he is the actual details of the flogging or the spikes. But we know when they had crucified him means they have stretched Jesus out. They've hammered spikes through probably his wrist and his feet. They've hung him in the air by those spikes through his arms and legs. And they'll leave him there to die. And what they don't know, what they can't see, is that they have accomplished um, the coronation of the king. Look, look at how many details in this little passage are like an actual coronation. We've already seen the crown and the scepter and the soldiers saying exactly what they would have said to Caesar, only instead of hail Caesar, they hail king of the Jews. Then, verse 36, after the coronation, look what happens. The guards set, set down and keep guard over the king. That ever happened in the king's court? Every day. Above his head, they put the charge against him, which read, this is Jesus, king of the Jews. Now, Pilate may have ordered that be placed over his head sort of ironically or to anger the Jews, but that doesn't make it any less true. This is exactly who they have crucified. Warren Wiersbe says of that placard that was above Jesus, he said, this is Jesus, 
King of the Jews, Warren Wiersbe says that was the first gospel tract that was ever written. He even has his own court. Verse 38, and the two outlaws were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Previously in the, the Gospel of Matthew, the, the disciples used to argue about who would be with Jesus in his kingdom on his right and on his left. And Jesus said to those two brothers, you do not know what you are asking. You know what it looks like to be as close to Jesus as you can get on this, work, on this earth? It doesn't always look like wealth and prosperity and happiness and health. It can look like humiliation and scorn and death. They don't know they've just crowned the king, but they have. And they really don't know. The rest of this passage is just about reactions that people had to Jesus being crucified. First, in verses 39 and 40, are people that Matthew just calls those passing by. Those who passed by. The, uh, again, crucifixions were public. Jesus was crucified like on the highway. So as many people uh, as possible could see it. Crucifixion victims often hung there before they died for days. But that wasn't the case with Jesus. This was very public and and those who were just passing by, they would stop. I mean, it's just part of human nature to pile on the guy that everybody's against, right? Especially if the Roman authorities are there by, you certainly don't want to side with somebody that's hanging on a cross. You don't want to appear sympathetic to somebody who's in that much trouble. So the people who pass by, they, they shake their heads which would be like, you know, I don't want to give you any examples of offensive gestures, but this is that version's, um, or that, uh, that culture's version of an offensive gesture, wagging uh, one's head. And they say this to Jesus, you say you can destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Why don't you save yourself? If you're God's son, come down from the cross. You know, what, what they say toward Jesus sort of makes sense. I mean, basically, basically the gist is this. If you are who you have claimed to be, and again, notice, everyone knew what Jesus claimed to be. Say, so if you are who you claim to be, you would never be hanging up there on a cross. It's just part of human nature to relieve suffering if it's possible, right? If I, if I accidentally put my hand on the hot stove, I'm, I'm not, because I'm a good Christian, going to say, well, apparently this is God's will for my life. I'm going to have to leave this here. No, I'm going to pull my hand away quickly. It makes sense. If you could keep that from happening, you would. But again, they don't see clearly what's really happening. They know Jesus has claimed to be greater than the temple. 
And he has been. Jesus said earlier, one who is greater than the temple is here. Their logic says this. If you are really greater than the temple, you would get down. Here's what they don't get. You know what made Jesus greater than the temple? Not getting off the cross, but being on the cross. Jesus being greater than the temple won't get him off the cross. That's what got him put on the cross. The, the temple system, the Levitical system, that system of animal sacrifices, it really didn't save anyone. It just pointed people toward what would save people. Jesus is greater than the temple because, because he became the sacrifice that actually did pay for sins. They shouldn't say, you can destroy the temple, save yourself. They should say something like, don't save yourself and then the temple can be destroyed and we won't care. The reason we don't need a temple is because Jesus went to the cross. They don't understand that the temple that was Jesus' body is going to be rebuilt in their reckoning of three days. They're like, God could never save someone through something like that. God would have to save someone from something like that. They don't see that in their reckoning of three days, according to the Jewish rabbinical uh, way of thinking, any part of a day is referred to as the whole day. So Jesus was, in, was dead for parts of Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. That's why on the third day, he rose again when it hadn't been 72 full hours. That's ex exactly what is going to happen. You said the temple would be destroyed and rebuilt in three days. Jesus is going to be his body, rebuilt, resurrected. And they say, if you are God's son, come down from the cross again. It makes sense. If you're really God's son, certainly God would never put his own son through what you are going through. He wouldn't allow it to happen. But Jesus being God's son is again what put him there. A few chapters ago, it's been a lot of sermons. But Jesus told a story about a man with two sons. He asked each son to go out and work in the vineyard. You remember that story? One son said, forget it, Dad. No, I ain't going out there. You always want me to work. <coughs> he said he wouldn't go, but then he changed his mind and he went. The other son was the opposite. The other son said, sure, Daddy, anything you say, Daddy. But then he didn't go. And Jesus asked this question, which one's the good son? You know what the real ultimate answer is? Neither one of them is the good son. In their culture, for a son to look right at his dad and say, no, you can't tell me what to do, was disgraceful toward that man. That's not a good son. And certainly, a son who lies and says he will do something to his dad, then embarrasses his dad later by not doing it, that's not a good son either. You know who the good son is? The one who hears what his father asks him to do, promises to do it, and then does it. Jesus is the good son. His father has asked him to be obedient to this command. Go allow yourself to be brutalized, tortured, and executed on a cross. And he said, yes, daddy. And then he did it. They say, if you're a God's son, you would never do that. 
Without saying the word, it's like Jesus says, you don't understand what the good son is. This is what I've been asked to do, and I am such a good son. I've agreed to do it. Also at the foot of the cross are the religious leaders, Jesus' main enemies. The guys who charged Jesus, brought Jesus to Pontius Pilate, and coerced Pilate into crucifying Jesus. And they're gloating. Here's what they say. Starting in verse 42. He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. If he comes down now from the cross, we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God, if he wants to, deliver him now. Because he said, I am God's son. Another group of guys who just don't see what's going on. We'll go through this phrase by phrase. Notice the first thing they say about Jesus. He saved others. What are they talking about there? What has Jesus done for other people that they know is absolutely true that could be considered saving someone from something? They're talking about Jesus' miracles. He has saved people from disease, from isolation, from storms. Again, even Jesus' enemies don't refute his miraculous power. They just say he got it from someplace dark and nefarious. But they say he saved other people, but he cannot save himself. Here's what they mean. If Jesus was truly innocent, God would not be letting that happen. Right? Because he obviously had power, but there's a greater power working against him. He might have been powerful enough to save others, but he's not powerful enough to save himself. We win, he loses, we're right, he's wrong. Do you see their error? The error is this. He is saving others by not saving himself. It's the whole point. It's the whole reason he's there. Next they say this. They talk about his identity as king of Israel. They know he claimed to be Messiah. If he comes down now from the cross, we'll believe in him. I think they're telling the truth right there. The religious leaders were waiting on a king. God had promised Israel a king. They hadn't had a king for hundreds and hundreds of years, and they want one. I, uh, I taught the Awana kids in council time a few weeks ago about this. It's the reason that the, the religious leaders came to Jesus and asked, hey, we know you have to be from God. Nobody can do the things you do unless you're from God. So, like, is this kingdom time? But here's what they wanted in a king. They wanted a king who would kick out who they thought were the bad guys and raise up who they thought were the good guys. And guess who they thought were the bad guys and the good guys? They thought the Romans were the bad guys and all the Gentiles. And they, the good Jews, they were the good guys. Jesus taught them in John 3, I have not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Does that mean there's not going to be any judgment? No, it doesn't mean that. Because Jesus said, here's the judgment. The one who has believed in the Son of Man is not judged. The one who does not believe in the Son of Man has been judged already 
simply by not believing in me, Jesus would say. They don't want a king like that. They don't want a king who will save the world. They want a king who will judge the world and raise them up. So here's what they say. If Jesus will, will get down off the cross and heal himself, Terminator 2 style, if I ever see that, you know what I'm talking about there, to get that reference, where he just heals himself. If he would do that, then we will support his candidacy as Messiah and King. What's, what's the, what would be the problem with that then? If Jesus gets off the cross before he absorbs the wrath of God and sets up his kingdom, guess how many people will be allowed in? One. Him. Because only the righteous will get into Jesus' kingdom. And the only way any of us get righteous is through faith in Jesus. And God puts his righteousness on our account. That's what the cross is for. It's the great trade-off. Sometimes I compare it to a personnel file. When I worked at the nuclear plant, I had to go through all the personnel files. There was over a thousand of them. Really fun. Except no, I wasn't. And my job was to go through the personnel file and shred all the stuff that was too old and keep all the stuff that was new. When someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, the King, it's like God takes His personnel file, the contents of Jesus' personnel file, all the good things He did, and there's no black marks, there's no record of any sin because He never committed any. God takes hid the contents of Jesus' personnel file and sticks it in your personnel file. He shreds yours and puts his in your place. But that doesn't happen unless Jesus pays for the penalty of our sins. Someone has to die for your sin. God promised. So when they say, if he comes down from the cross, we'll believe in him. Believing in an undead Jesus. Believing in a Jesus that never died wouldn't do anyone any good. Because the wages of sin is... Let me try that one more time. The wages of sin is... Thank you. The wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is not almost death. The wages of sin is not getting beat up really bad. The wages of sin is death. Someone had to die for your sins. Either I could die in my own sin or someone who never committed a sin could die in my place. So get down from the cross and we will believe in you is a really terrible plan. But they don't see that. He trusts in God. Let God, if he wants to, deliver him now because he said, I am God's son. This is the same problem the crowds or the passers-by said. Surely if he's God's good son, God would never let that happen. He's not up there because he's not God's good son. He's up there because he is. Um, briefly, verse 44, I didn't put it on the screen. Matthew just mentions that the two criminals on either side hurling insults at Jesus also. I don't know if Matthew just didn't hear of the, the, the one criminal who came to faith in Christ that Luke tells us about, or if Matthew just wanted to leave the picture of Jesus being completely rejected because he was. 
That's the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. That's also the coronation of the King of Kings. It's a great paradox. Nothing has ever looked more like a loss. Nothing has ever looked more like a defeat. No one has ever looked more completely rejected and weak than Jesus. And one reason Jesus looked completely rejected is because on the cross he was completely rejected. Not just rejected by the people, but rejected by the Father. That's the paradox. He was rejected so you and I can be accepted. He was killed so that you and I one day could have life. He was humiliated so that you and I could be glorified. That's, that's the cross. It's, I don't blame the people at the foot of the cross for failing to see what was actually going on. I just want to make sure that you don't fail to see it anymore. One reason, the main reason, that people at the cross did not believe anything good could be happening is because it's really easy to have this bad frame of mind. God is working in my life. My life will look like wealth and health and popularity and happiness. The cross is our eternal reminder that that's just not so. God is powerful enough to work through the darkest, the most painful, the most awful circumstances in our lives. He can redeem those things. It's how he redeemed everything. God does promise joy and hope and happiness. He just doesn't promise it necessarily today but one day. So you and I, to have that hope, to have that joy, we have to understand that what was going on at the cross was a coronation as much as a crucifixion. It was the substitutionary death of Jesus for me, that he stood in my place. He stood between the wrath of God that was aimed at me. He stood between me and God and absorbed the wrath I deserve. We have to just accept and believe that that's what he was doing. I hope you understand that. I hope you believe that. And if you do, joy and hope and peace is yours. Maybe not today. Maybe not tomorrow. But one day, Jesus promised, I am going to build a place for you. I believe he's doing that for me, for those of us who believe right now. And now, once a month, we, we get this table ready, and here's, here's what we're doing. For those of us who believe and understand what I've just been describing, we remember like this passage. We remember what Jesus did at the cross. We take the elements, the symbols of those things and put it inside of ourselves as a way to remind us this does not save you. 
but for saved, for redeemed people. What we're going to do now is a way to remind ourselves again that no matter how much I've messed up this week, no matter how bad my life is right now, no matter what I'm struggling with, dealing with, the wrath God had for me was already poured out on him. The blood of Jesus has been applied to my heart. The king was crucified for me. That's what we're going to remind ourselves about that I'm going to pray about in just a minute. I'm going to pray and invite the guys to come forward and help me pass this out. Father God, I thank you so much for the gift of your son. Lord Jesus, I thank you for being the good son who was obedient even to death on the cross. Thank you that you went all the way to death. Someone had to die for my sin, and I thank you, Lord Jesus, for choosing to be the one who would do that. Thank you for being rejected, that we might be accepted. Thank you for dying, that we might live. God, as the bread comes around, just pray that you would commune with us while we remember that Jesus willingly gave up his body to be crucified in our place.